We are Jamie and Laura, and this is Shooting the Shit, your current affairs millennial debate show. And welcome to episode one. Or as it may later be renamed if we change the franchise, change the storyline, come up with a backstory and an origination story, episode three, potentially episode two, because we've already recorded an episode zero, but you may never hear that. So for all intents and purposes, it's episode one. Uh, Over the next 40 minutes, we'll be bringing you our perspectives on everything from Google affordable housing and the tech companies monopolizing retail uh, to, quite frankly, the plain ridiculous. So let's get going with the weekly rundown. Twitter may have put the final nail in their coffin, increasing the number of characters in a post from 140 to 280 for all users, removing perhaps the only point of differentiation they had. Pros, you can now tell a story and include a link and a photo without exceeding the limit. Cons, most people simply can't be asked to read that much. Next up, over 15,000 scientists signed a letter to humanity to tell us that it's almost too late to save the environment. In the past 25 years, the amount of ocean dead zones, where there's no oxygen, thus no life, has increased by 75%. The amount of flying insects has also reduced by 75%. And the total human population has increased by 35%. The data comes from a mix of government agencies, non-profit organisations and individual researchers, as they set out their case that environmental impacts were likely to inflict substantial and irreversible harm to the earth. As the average property price in Silicon Valley now exceeds $1 million, the likes of Google and Facebook believe they have a solution, kindly investing in building homes for thousands of their employees. More on that one later. Greg's, the pastry and baked goods shop, have offended a chunk of the population this week when their Christmas advert showed a nativity scene where baby Jesus had been replaced with a sausage roll. Christians on Twitter didn't like the three wise men gathered around the pastry Christ, and others came to their support in asking for all faiths to be treated equally. The UK Evangelical Alliance said that they were not too outraged. Greg's isn't the only company upsetting people with their Christmas ads. The festive media equivalent of Marmite, that is the John Lewis ad, has caused a little more disruption than usual this year, as accusations of plagiarism emerged this week. Google Mr Underbed by Chris Riddle, and you'll see what we mean. And finally... Alibaba processed $1 billion of payments within the first two minutes of Singles Day, the Chinese festival celebrating being single. And with Black Friday approaching at time of recording, we ask, is it healthy to indulge in these one-off retail binges? Ah, Christmas ads, my my favourite, favourite time of year. What do you reckon, Jamie? I'm not really sure what Greg thought they were doing there. I mean, I am asking myself internally, is it bad that I think it's hilarious? I think Sausage Roll up to now hasn't been uh, a big enough part of Christmas. And I think it's good that someone like Greg's is willing to put themselves out there and address that problem. Giving Sausage Roll centre stage. Much A much sadder story is the situation with the John Lewis ad. So for those of you who haven't read about it online... Um, as we alluded to in the weekly rundown, there is a children's book which is almost identical to the John Lewis advert in storyline, in in the visual way the monster under the bed is represented, and it's it's almost it would be almost impossible to have created those two things in isolation. So I think John Lewis have come out and said. Our story is uh, fundamentally different. That's that's debatable. Like, I mean, monster under the bed, snoring loudly, shaking bed. Keeping boy awake. Keeping boy awake. Ultimately, like, becoming a friend of the boy. It's pretty similar. But there is a happy ending to the story. 
Chris Riddle's book, uh, Mr. Underbed, has now like sold out of all existing stock. It's into a new print run. Uh, his publishers are putting a massive campaign on it to get it into multiple stores. They're driving a campaign to have it as like top of the sales charts for Christmas in competition with uh, John Lewis's own book, which is called Moz the Monster. And that's great because I know it's really tough in publishing generally at the moment, but especially... Um, children's books have so much competition um, I really feel for the um, sneaky beaky at the ad agency who thought they were going to get away with that someone's definitely going to get fired yeah, there's a fine line isn't there between like inspiration uh, and where we get our ideas like how many new things are there definitely out there the concept of a monster under the bed is nothing new as both parties have acknowledged but there's a point when it gets a little bit too close for comfort and the monster is large, blue, snoring under the bed, looks exactly the same as another monster that you have to say, hmm, okay, maybe you're nicking some ideas. Absolutely. Is there such thing as an original idea left? Um, perhaps a longer debate for another week. Yeah, and for both our careers, I, I hope so. <laughs> I really hope so. And that brings us to the end of the weekly rundown. We've got two very special, beautiful guests with us this week joining us for the scary beginning. Firstly, Fizzy Emmett, named after the most wonderful of the My Little Ponies, and a fan, the only one we know of worldwide, of the Tongue Scraper. Fizzy, welcome. Tell us about that. Well, firstly, the My Little Pony. It's a glorious turquoise colour with a pink mane, and I believe ice creams. Bearing much... Yes, very um, much resemblance to you in real life, much. I have to say, for the listeners. Um, and the Tongue Scraper, I know there are others of you out there. Please do write in with your love of the glorious, glorious Tongue Scraper. Um, tongue Scraper lovers, just so that we can prove Fizzy wrong, you can contact us anytime on shooting the shh with a double H at gmail.com. And we're also joined by Joe Tanner, uh, a man who practices spy moves in his spare time. Uh, has been known to get a bus he doesn't need three stops to try and lose someone on his tail. Uh, and as far as we're aware, isn't named after a My Little Pony. Joe, is it even worth asking why you practice spy moves in your spare time? It's going to sound weird, but nobody followed me to the office today. I've come in tail free, got no listening devices in my room. I think we're all reassured by that. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, are you hiring out your services to come and check that our rooms aren't being bugged to walk with us to work and teach us how to spot people on our tail? You can't afford me. Okay. J- just to clarify, we actually want people to be listening. I have not understood the joke, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> just, also, just to clarify, Joe, you do know you're being recorded right now by some kind of recording device. How do you feel about that? This is exactly why I didn't want to do this. I'm here against my will. <laughs> he's not. He's fine. He begged us to be here. Um, both of these two are serial innovators that Jamie and I can't help spontaneously debating with over a cup of coffee every single day. So believe me, you are lucky you're only going to get half an hour of this. As we heard in the weekly rundown, Google and Facebook have recently announced that they're committing extremely large investments to building apartments on their campuses. So just to give you an idea of the numbers we're talking about, Google Town, as it's being called, is investing $30 million in 300 units of modular housing. Um, Facebook have invested up to, to be able to build 1,500 housing units and 112,000 square foot hotel, which I personally can't imagine, but it sounds big. 
this week we wanted to talk about this because there's a certainty that within our working lives how we define and interact with work is going to shift hugely um we all know someone that works from beach in bali um well at least on our instagrams and someone else whose company only works monday to thursday in the same way we look to the tech giants to know where try to understand new ways of looking at business models or how to use data differently it might also be a good indicator as to where working life is heading what do we think i think like i feel like it's maybe just a modern spin on the factory or military town yes sounds a lot like it like back in the day ford would construct an entire town for all the workers in its factory and because Ford was a social entrepreneur as well as a business one, he banned drinking and it was all a very wholesome place to work. And certainly right. we had the same here in, in the UK with Cadbury, Cadburyville, um, which still exists. And I think Cadbury workers can still live. Oh, Bourneville, sorry, it was called Bourneville, um, as in the chocolate bars that you know and love. Wow, I didn't know there that. Was, there's a, a town for Cadbury workers and I believe you can still live there, I don't know. Man, many industries in the UK, like from clothing mills up in the northwest to like the coal mine villages to brickworks in the Midlands like and even the Honda town in Japan there's lots all over the world but I think I think interestingly here I think what we're what we're seeing here and possibly it's the same as, as in the early industrial times is a real pressure on the the average working person to be able to live decently it's quite difficult especially you know all the reports on tech world um, in San Fran, to live there is punishingly expensive. It makes London look cheap, and that's a joke. And so, the, you know, you, you want to go and work for one of these big companies where there's a lot of jobs, but actually living there is very, very difficult. And I think that was a problem um, in the industrial time to, to give affordable living to people who couldn't afford basic life. And I think that's kind of where we're getting to again today. But is this another example of big tech companies causing a problem and then running to the rescue of all those people who they harmed? Absolutely. I think that's exactly the point. Um, they're creating these very, very small focus points of places to work um, and there just isn't enough housing there and, and whether it's their job or, or the community's job to, to build enough houses, it's just not happening. I mean, I saw a really interesting video made by either Facebook or the Chan Zuckerberg Fund, which is, of course, the um, more charitable arm of the Facebook activity, where they, they spoke much more about bringing the community in as opposed to building insular apartment blocks just for people in, in Facebook. So of course the um, of course the blocks are there for them to live in and that solves an immediate problem with the, the expense of living in Silicon Valley. But they were talking about um, these public spaces, theatres, shops, all of the all of the sort of mod cons if you like, being available to local communities and being able to foster that spirit a bit more. I don't know whether it's the cynic in me, but I think a lot of these big tech companies started in a world of utopia and community and sharing and you know free access to software or any other kind of big tech speak. Mm. Um, and they've ended up in profit-making global companies. And I wonder if this is just going the same way. It's, a, it's an ideal and it's going to end up in something much more. And there's two things here. The first one is um, that that's an admirable place to start. But exactly as you're saying, over time, suddenly you've got this big cost centre that you've just built and over time over time over time the pressures of shareholders are going to erode that erode that erode that and probably by the time it's even built the, the justification the social justification for that will be outweighed by the, the monetary one but secondly they're talking about planning brand new communities here and they, they seem to be treating it like data that they can just import a community from somewhere that's not how it works 
You look at uh, Brasilia in Brazil, which is like a whole planned city, planned by Le Corbusier, and it was meant to be the perfect place to live. But the fact is that cities have to develop organically, and the best cities in the world to live in are the ones that grow up organically because they, they fit to how people actually want to live and how they, and they like to go about their business. So is it another example of the tech companies living outside of the federal governance in terms of because taxation is being avoided by those big tech companies we're looking for the capitalist solution of philanthropy over taxation therefore it's their responsibility to provide this housing as so capitalism would say from a um, point of view of enterprise solution but what you end up with is a situation where they get to call the shots so they get to plan the city they get to decide how their workers are going to interact with it. They get to decide, presumably, like you said about Henry Ford, how their workers act whilst they're in their, their home lives rather than just in their work lives. I think there's a certain one there of the home life and work life that's an interesting one, which is the balance. Why do, why do Google and Facebook really see the value in having their workers on site, being provided for, having something to be grateful for to the company? Is it just going to create much more blurring of the demands on your personal life to be given over to work? Let's do a quick spot check. Imagine that we work at Facebook or Google and the accommodation is really expensive. That's not hard for us to imagine. Um, and you are offered a place on campus to live. Who would live there? No way. Okay, we've got two hands up in the room. We've got one yet to state. Yeah, I was going to put my hand up because no one can see. <laughs> um, You've missed how audio works, I think. <laughs> it's all a learning experience. Um, okay, so Fizzy and I would like to live there. Joe, you definitely wouldn't. Jamie? I think I would live off campus. You'd live off campus at, at greater expense to yourself. Yeah, yeah. Or at least I'd like have a session with Joe to learn some spy skills of how I wouldn't be tailed whilst in the campus I mean it's a good point but I heard Spice Girls which is also a, um, yeah, yeah, a valuable Joe, thing to learn but I don't Joe know also Joe... does classes on Spice Girls <laughs> on right. Airbnb experience I think we all constantly complain about the the kind of pri- uh, privacy problem that social media creates so if you happen to work for one of them and then live within their campus compound whatever you want to call it I, that sounds like why are you two so keen so, I mean, my reasoning is is just the idea of once there starts being a bulk of people living in these sites, that will end up setting the standard for um, behaviour. So being there late, if you're, if you're late because you're stuck in congestion because you're not commuting, less understandable. There's an option here. Why don't you take it? Um, I think if you're going to have a problem with the ethics of it, I mean, the whole point here is that I'm probably not going to go and work for Facebook. Like, I don't think I would want to work there in the first place. But if I were to be working there and I were to be buying into that as, as like a way of, a way of like contributing to the world and having my job, then I would be buying into that fully and I would want to be on the front foot against my colleagues. But that's exactly why I wouldn't want to live there. Exactly that is that if you, if you particularly if you work in innovation, you need to experience the real world. Mm-hmm. You need to be sitting in traffic to, to empathise and understand how regular people spend their lives. If you're living, I mean, these tech companies to a degree can often live in their own little worlds as it is. Aren't we just going to create these little communities that live in a tiny bubble that they've made and that they're now inflating and making sure that the walls are ever thicker? I think that's certainly a risk. I think as I've, I can just, I was thinking about it from my own perspective and, you know, within the last five years having graduated and you're already um, primed to take on a company and 
sort of you're you're open to engaging with it and all that it has to offer whether it's extracurricular stuff the, the fitness classes whatever it is you're ready to take that on and and you don't have any other commitments or responsibilities that prevent you from fully engaging in what's in, what it's offering and i can really see a benefit for um people moving um new to the area to really get to know people um, a safe environment somewhere where for a couple of years you can just get your head down and get on um, you are with people who are interesting to you and also companies like Facebook and Google offer such tremendous benefits to their employees already I'd kind of want to be there to take advantage of that but I think that the my main driver for wanting this and being on the pro is it's so easy and I'm really tired of commuting an hour to work and an hour back every single day. And if I could repurpose those hours, I would. But this is so interesting because you're starting to talk about this like people maybe 10 years ago started talking about universities. We started talking about the university experience. And it was no longer about the academic opportunities you were going to get and who you were going to learn from and how much time you were going to get and facilities and that kind of thing. And it started to be much more all these soft features that a lot of people have argued have in some ways devalued that education have weakened universities of places of research and learning and have completely changed the role that they play in uh, evening out social justice and all those kind of things. I do wonder how many of these um, probably quite nice apartments are going to end up being affordable for a long time. Mm. Certainly there are some stats about only a small proportion of them being affordable in inverted commas. Um, so I'd be interested to know um, how they're going to play that in terms of the benefits of having their staff having a cheaper life on, on campus. Um, versus actually just turning out to be quite a good money spinner. Most of us in the world don't work at Google or Facebook and I just wonder what principles might we be able to take from what they're doing that might ripple down into smaller companies or less tech-driven companies. So the question I, I had was, are they counterbalancing um, the opposite solution, which would be they could pay their workers more money so they could afford to live mm. in the bubble of housing prices that they've created and that it's cheaper for them to build houses than it is for, to pay their workers more but that's just a never-ending cycle that, that that's one of the things that causes more and more inflation in the market mm -hmm. i think one of the interesting things that we're seeing here and we see see it happening with lots of big innovative companies in all kinds of different ways is that they are moving faster than states and governments and even whole economies in some respects can react and that's exactly what's happening here. You've got a business like Facebook that's grown so fast in one office, essentially, in Silicon Valley, that it broke all of the rules of how small local economies were going to work. And over time, you would see more demand coming in, so people would go and invest, and they'd build houses and so on and so on. I, the big question that it raises for me is, are our governments going to find a way to keep up with the pace of change? And should they? Yeah, well, you'd hope that they are going to and that they have to before companies like Facebook and Google become something more like that? For me, it's that the greatest talent lies in those tech centres right now um, and until our governments can offer um, or create something, a compelling enough opportunity, then they will never be able to keep up with the pace of change of tech. Or the change happens before they get there. Like We might have said this about industrial, the industrial towns that we started talking mm -hmm. about um, at the beginning of this section, they presumably felt that it was gonna their boom was gonna go on forever and it didn't. And um, that would be the other worry that the boom of Facebook or 
big tech doesn't go on forever. Uh, automation comes in and we don't need uh, housing for those robots. That's a great question for someone's PhD, right? It's like, what, what lessons can we learn from the Industrial Revolution and the death of many of the cities up in the north of England, for example, and apply it to the same challenge here? I bet there'd be some really interesting stuff. So, on to our second topic of debate, which is Singles Day in China. Uh, Singles Day, for those of you who don't know, uh, is uh, the biggest shopping day in the world. Uh, it started off as a celebration of being single uh, and has grown into a shopping extravaganza unlike the world has ever known. This year, China's biggest retailer, Alibaba, generated a record $25.3 billion of sales. Um, they also, for the first time, started to branch out to more uh, traditional retailers and allow them to access groceries, to technology, to fashion, to white goods, to at least 225 different countries and regions around the world. It triggers so much in me. Um... I mean, let's get on to it in a second, but do, does everyone in the room know what Singles Day is? I, I, I guess it's somewhat like Black Friday, which we know here, which is the celebration of the last payday before Christmas, I think it is. I think it's the reason behind Black Friday. Um, maybe wrong. But um, it sounds to me like it's just an excuse to rev up a load of people, to mm. have an excuse to go and buy lots of probably discounted goods. Um, it seems to be being run predominantly by Alibaba in the same way that we see a lot of Amazon dominating Black Friday in this country. I just don't know how the line was ever drawn from we are single and happy to we should buy loads of stuff. Okay. How was the line from Christ was born on the 20th of December drawn to here's a big TV? Because of frankincense, golden myrrh and a different order. I stand now. Okay. <laughs> I do I do somewhat question that celebrating single requires purchasing of goods to celebrate it. But does it matter? Like we're, we're projecting a lot of morals onto this and we're somehow like judging in some way, it sounds, um, people who are single choosing to celebrate that and do so by indulging themselves. Is that not what people do all the time in various different ways? You know, there's an inclination sometimes to look at it from Europe in particular and look at China and regard it as slightly odd um, because we don't understand it properly. I think it's fantastic that these that there is a celebration of singledom in China that is so flamboyant and extravagant and enormous. Is it a celebration of singledom just in name? It sounds to me like there are so many purchases that it can't just be single people celebrating being single. I think the, uh, the true meaning may have been, been lost in the retail extravaganza. Uh, there are some theories out there. Uh, I think it was originally celebrated in a university. Uh, it was originally a bachelor's day and was celebrated by men. Um, the fact that it's on the 11th of November, so one, 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 and those ones look like single lines. Um, I mean, the mythology is not amazing. It's no Christmas. But let's, but let's not get it twisted. This was a genius idea. Any idea, <clears throat> any idea that can bring you 25 billion on one day that's the size of most enormous engineering firms. Right? I'm working with a firm today who every single year turn over 25 billion. They've been in existence for over 100 years. It absolutely blows my mind, the logistics of delivering on that. The run-up to Christmas for most shops is challenging. And we've seen that Black Friday makes websites crash, 
for like vans to deliver that volume of parcels. And, and you just mentioned, Jamie, that, that local shops have been brought in by Alibaba and others in, in China and, and actually across Asia. And, and that's surely for fulfillment. They need places to put these packages for people to be able to collect them from, to send vans to get things from. Just the, the sheer volume of stuff moving around and having that much stock ready for it. It's, it's truly remarkable. And that's what I find really interesting about this as well. When you compare it to how Amazon might have tried to address something like this and you see the scale of Amazon compared to Black Friday, uh, sorry, Black Friday compared to Singles Day, admittedly in different sized markets. But Amazon would want to control that entire experience. They'd want to control the entire value chain, right, from like picking the item all the way through to arriving at the door. Whereas Jack Myers turned around from Alibaba and said, like, actually, it's okay for us to, to create opportunities for other businesses and other small entrepreneurs in, you know, rural towns here, there and everywhere to have a piece of this pie as well. And that's what's made it such a huge thing. We always come back to this. Is it a happy two-sided solution? Um, or is it that they couldn't possibly have delivered on it satisfactorily by themselves? Um, but one of the things that comes out for, for me on this is Alibaba just owning such a huge spectrum of stuff in this one event. So everything from new ways to consume entertainment, um, music, fashion, you laid it out at the beginning, Jamie, just all of that stuff. And it just feels like an ever-expanding um, sort of golf, taking just taking over everything. And that kind of puts some fear in me. Is that different to how you feel about Amazon? It's not actually, but that's new to me. Why is it different? Um, it's not different to me anymore. I am starting to feel that way about Amazon. And I just wonder, is there something in consumer mindset that's going to tick for people and says, I'm not comfortable putting all of my eggs in, in a basket of one company? Maybe, but it d- doesn't it come down to network effects again. So in, in exactly the same way as um, Facebook and all those things. Do you remember when, when we were younger, you'd have had Bebo, you'd have had MySpace, you'd have Facebook... You'd have had, I don't know, there were, there were hundreds of them. And eventually one wins because there's a benefit to each of us in all of the rest of us being on there. Because now everything can work through Facebook and we can all communicate through it. That's why WhatsApp is the, is the instamester of choice as well. In a world where categories are increasingly moving together and everything, the lines between everything are starting to blur, in a lot of ways, it makes sense for me as a consumer to use Amazon for everything. And it also makes sense for for me, for all three of you to use Amazon as well. Because now maybe we can start sending each other stuff and you've got wish lists on there for your Christmas presents and we can access that for each other. We can very easily share things. Isn't it better for everyone if it's all located in one spot like that? I do certainly think there's obviously a lot of functionality that you can gain from, from what is essentially a monopoly. But for many, many years, we have had lots of regulation around monopolies for the very reason that Laura mentioned, she hinted to that she's frightened of it. Like, there's a lot of power that comes with being the the monopoly, and I do wonder when we're going to get to the point at which regulation catches up with this new breed of everything companies, um, and and starts to impose rules on them. So at the moment, the consumer, <clears throat> I think, would say that the power is with the consumer. I get cheaper goods. I get speedier access I get easier to control accounts payments uh, visibility of both the supply chain and the delivery chain is there a danger that at some point that power shifts and that the monopoly is so great that they can put prices up or they can remove some elements of, of service for their benefit rather than the consumer's benefit 
undoubtedly. But what's interesting about a lot of the tech companies that are coming through now, and the, it's a great question, like how long this effect will last, but they found themselves in the position they're in today because their competitors, because the big incumbents were thinking in that way. It's a lot of the time we say like, oh, disruptors have come into this market and they've come in with this really edgy new approach and they've blown the whole thing wide open. Isn't it genius? And actually a lot of the time it's because those categories were like horribly managed by the incumbents that were there and they were doing a really terrible job of meeting the needs of those consumers. Now, Jeff Bezos, whatever you think of him, has a relentless eye on the customer. And Amazon as, a, as an organization are pretty, pretty good at keeping their eye on that consumer. So to the extent that they might fear someone doing an Amazon on Amazon, then, then there's always that kind of soft barrier that's in there as well. I do wonder though, the, the monopoly fear is, is not just about whether they'll start you know, taking away certain services and, and you know, exerting their control in a way that the consumer feels. Is it just more sinister and more like they own everything? They own everything in your home and they own all of the data and all of the, everything you do in your life. And so that is a, you know, that is a big threat depending on how they choose to use it or not use it. it that's a lot of, of information to have on somebody. Coming back onto the the single one-off event, whether it's Singles Day, whether it's Black Friday, what's the psychology behind that from a consumer point of view? What makes someone think, actually, I'm going to spend all my money on that day. I'm going to do my Christmas shopping. I'm going to wait to upgrade that television that I've been waiting three years to do. Like, What are people getting out of it? And that's a great question. And I would love to know you guys' thoughts is, is that about, I'm going to buy this thing and treat myself? Is it a really positive emotion or do you think it is I don't want to miss out do you think it's like I better buy this now because I'm going to want it in a few months and I would hate to have been stunned I'm really clear on this um, and that is one Black Friday some years has made me much more organised in preparing for Christmas so that I'm ready to take advantage of any deals that are there but now I just think that pricing is such a changing feat anyway I mean um, Chris, my boyfriend, showed me last night this thing called Camel, Camel, Camel. I don't know if you guys are aware of it or whether I'm late to the party. I'm aware of it. There is some, there is some awareness in the room. Um, camel, Camel, Camel shows you, it's a ridiculous name, shows um, sort of patterning of pricing over time. It comes out particularly prevalently in Prime where that price is moving up and down as the products move in or out of that Prime available catalogue. Um, so... I mean, it just makes me lose faith in the whole way that we're pricing things. Um, and I don't, it's always kind of a negative interaction for me on Black Friday because I'm, I'm just doing it because I'm playing the game and it's kind of reductive. It's not me getting an amazing deal because everyone can get it and there's nothing smart about it. I, th I think two things just to reply to you quickly, Laura. I think this um, changing prices over time is something that the internet's really made happen. Um, more in real time that we can all see and we're all more aware of it and I think that's going to become more prevalent um, in all forms of shopping and purchasing but I think there's a big thing here about kind of mass hysteria and mass excitement about this, this day and event and, and actually Singles Day has done it really overtly this year and they've had this big music event it's been a festival it's really building hype around it Black Friday seems to still be a lot about discount and pricing and, and getting a deal Whereas I think what we're seeing with Singles Day and, and the size of it is to do with hype and making, like, mass hysteria is a proven psychological thing. As soon as lots of excitement happens, it snowballs. 
So like when we're going through a tough time and some royals get married, right? It's just something for society to look forward to. I certainly think from... I didn't know much about Singles Day until I was starting looking at it this week. And it certainly feels like it has a way more positive spin on it than Black Friday does. I guess when I then think about their business model, though, I wonder what happens to their sales in the run-up to. You look at what happening happening in the grocery market, at least in the UK, is in a lot of categories manufacturers getting heavily reliant on promotion and they basically sell little, like next to nothing at regular price and so all they've really done is transitioned their their portfolio of products from like a mid amount of volume at a mid kind of price to a huge amount of volume at a very very low price and that works for some people and it doesn't work for others the problem is it's, it only works in one direction it's really easy to increase volume as you knock price down it's very hard to build that volume back up are higher prices once people have got used to that kind of price. So I wonder how many times per year the overall consumer ecosystem can deal with large sales. Is there another way that they've um, kind of technological good sellers, which is what people like Amazon and Alibaba were originally, um, have mimicked supermarket retailers? Because mentioning Camel, 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 supermarket prices have always moved like that because they move based on like the supply and demand that they can get produce into the supermarkets at. Like your broccoli price changes every week. Are these retailers making other consumer goods as disposable and on demand as things like daily groceries? What's really interesting about internet retailers is that they can change the price just for you, Jamie. Or like just for you, Fizzy, or just for you, Laura, or just for me. So actually they're, they're targeting your pricing according to supply and demand can be much more precise and therefore they can maximise profit in a lot of different ways. And so I suppose their ability to make sure that consumers don't get used to a certain way of pricing and so on might be a little stronger than a supermarket that has to do it en masse. Final question, where does it all end? Do we end up only shopping on one day a year? Do we end up shopping only with one retailer? I personally think it ends with a gradual abandonment of monopolies. Um, like Amazon, etc., and moving to platforms where we can generically access lots of small businesses. I think there, I hope there's going to be a move away from having so much stuff. I think we've reached saturation, and I think these frenzies in a few years' time, we're going to look back on them with disgust. Yeah. I have the complete opposite point of view. I think this is just the start. This is just the start of a massive retail war um, that will probably be fought globally instead of in single markets and that in the, the next 10 years you will see days like singles end weeks like Black Friday being a big determinant of the overall share price of certain companies and, and ultimately their value excellent I guess tune back in in a decade and we'll see where we're at with Black Friday So uh, we're heading rapidly towards the end of episode one, um, but the uh, wires have been buzzing all week, Laura, haven't they? With uh, buzzing, with our non-existent yet listeners asking us questions. That's not true. I know that at least one of the partners of someone in the room has listened to at least three minutes, and another partner four minutes. So we have at least 0.1 listeners. Excellent, but they haven't managed to ask us any questions yet. So. <laughs> For episode one, we're going to throw that out into the room, uh, Fizzy, Joe, any other business? I, I saw an interesting news story today that Apple have announced the delay 
unsurprisingly, of their home pod. This is their $350 um, challenger to Amazon Echo, um, Google Home, and Sonos One. Um, it's going to focus on music and audio quality as its thing, and it's only going to allow you to stream Apple Music. So, firstly, the delay of tech tech launches. This is something we're now getting more and more familiar with. Lots of big promises. How long and then, is it delayed by? Um, until next year, um, unspecified. But also, is there room for another device that talks to you in your home, that plays stuff for you and controls controls your devices? So I would say this is back to Apple's original goal behind iTunes and the iPod, which was to drive people to a hardware and a software that were connected in a way that you couldn't separate yourself from. So they've probably found that the iPhone allows too much access to Spotify, Deezer, Tidal, other ways of accessing music. So bring back to a single device that makes you only be able to stream their one entertainment gives them a more holistic solution. It's interesting how opposite that is to Google's general business model. And actually both of them are working pretty well. Yeah. Is that Apple are going down this singular lock-you-in route and Google are trying to be the platform for everything else. And actually both of them are ending up with very similar products in a lot of ways delivered in a completely different way and making money in a completely different way. I just who really will win? Who will win overall? I think if you're in the Apple ecosystem, you're going to probably buy an Apple home and it might, there'll be some people it might switch from uh, Spotify to Apple Music. I think there'll be other people who, like the music or the way of accessing the entertainment is higher on their priority list than their like suite of devices. So I'd imagine that's not going to shift the needle very far. Just... It always seems to me a really brittle business model because every time you lose one customer out of that ecosystem, you lose mm. probably all of their revenue. Whereas I'd much rather have a, a model like Google's where actually, even if I lose all of their revenue in one part of my business, I've still got it in the rest of it. I just don't understand what you're getting that's different with it other than it being Apple. I mean, you can use your iPhone to connect to other branded devices and if they're going for sound quality, then they're competing against Sonos who are one of the best speaker brands you can go for. I, I just don't understand its purpose and its place. I mean, I tend to agree with you. The only reason they won with iPods in the first place is because iPods was a much better user interface and experience than, uh, than the MP3 player. But now it feels like unless they're going to make strides, especially in a year's time, unless they're going to have made strides, I just don't see this playing out for them. Joe, any other news? I have a question. Yes. What will make us start buying reusable cups for our coffee? There was a story today that the UK's Environment Department, the UK Government's Environment Department, gets through 1,400 disposable coffee cups every single day. And earlier in the year, they bought 500 reusable keep cups. And would you like to guess how many they've sold? 1%. They have sold three in the last three years. When will we start allocating every tiny baby with a keep cup that it must keep for its life rather than making it purchase it because quite frankly it's astounding to me the damage to the world that mm-hmm. we're doing by making it a you know a, a fancy a fancy expensive option and I'm inverting commas for the audience to buy a keep cup when you will be given a free um, cup in in Starbucks or wherever you happen to be isn't that crazy this is the the UK's governmental environment agency yeah 
And they've only sold three. Why? Why is that? It's such it's such a massive behaviour that we have to change. And everything that is around... The emotion that surrounds holding that cup that is throwaway, but there's something in it and that snugness when you hold it. But I'm clear on this. Stop serving temporary cups. Stop the whole thing. Stop producing them. Get Make people buy a cup and they will bring it back. We've seen it at festivals. We've seen it at music concerts. Felicity. We've seen it in um, supermarket bags. We've seen that it in bags. Change. Tremendous. I'd say that one side of it is that taxation, uh, regulation, make people pay, people, like, eventually behaviour will change. The other side of it is let's, let's put a lot more money into the research behind properly biodegradable materials, uh, algae-based. Yes. I- I've got a great idea. I, my, my hand Don't shot up because I have to tell you. What we did with cigarette packets, we should do with coffee cups. And I know it's not quite the same thing, but we should make them less glamorous and awful to hold. Jack? This is really funny. We've got a room of four innovators. And so far, the solutions that we've come up with are research into biodegradable materials. We've had regulation, banning them, taxation, and we've had some advertising. Isn't this some kind of consumer experience issue? And doesn't this just need some kind of simple solve that is understanding the, the psychology of why it is that people won't make a decision that they know is rationally right, but for some reason... Because in the moment they have to pay for it. it. Honestly, the barrier between a free disposable cup and five pounds on a keep cup, in that specific moment, not in your rational, I'm thinking about my life way, but in that moment where that coffee is about to be handed to you, or you might have forgotten it in your handbag, or you can't be bothered to wash it, Five pounds or ten pounds, however much the cup is, in that tiny, tiny moment is enough to detract. So you think it's a pricing issue? Yeah. Free versus something to pay for. The majority of people are leaning in their in their in their horrid little secret habit life that is they're buying coffee. I think that's disruptive. I've got to solve the coffee drip. You get your bag filled up, and then it, basically you get coffee intravenous, and all you do is you time. At uh, what times in the day your bag delivers the caffeine head to you? Is it a reusable bag? Yes. What about yeah. a coffee fountain? Like a water fountain outside? <laughs> For everyone. You see? It's not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, and on that note, it brings us to the close of episode one. Woo! Um, thank you so much, Joe and Fizzy, setting the bar ridiculously high for all future guests. And please do come back for more current affairs, how we see it. She was Laura, I was Jamie. Thank you for shooting the shit with us. Bye.